Now, all that we've seen about Amulek so far is to help us compare the qualities of his heart to the hearts of his peers in the city of Ammonihah. How open was he to God's invitation to allow, to make room for a prophet of God to enter his life? So take what we've seen in Alma 8 and 10 and compare it to what we see of the people of Ammonihah in chapter 9. You have a very different kind of heart here. In verse 1, they go and begin preaching, but the people begin to contend with them. Contention, fighting, disputation, signs of a hardened heart. Their question, right off the bat, verse 2, is to Alma alone. They don't realize he has a companion with him yet. Who art thou? Followed by the question in verse 6, and who is God? Remember we talked about this with King Noah? Those were his two questions to Abinadi. Who is God and who art thou? Remember those were Cain's questions? Who is God and who's my brother Abel that I should care about him? Those were Pharaoh's questions with Moses. Who is the Lord that's commanding me to set his people free? And who the heck are you to make these demands of me? Most of the problems we see with people come from a failure to know God and to know God's prophets. And that's exactly the case with the people of Ammonihah. In both instances, it's a matter of quantity and not just quality. In verse 2, who are you? You're just one man. Suppose you that we believe the testimony of one man. And in verse 6, who's God that would send no more authority than one man among this people? This is an important reminder that God doesn't rely on masses and multitudes or even majorities that God is able and willing. It seems that he prefers to minister to the one rather than move the masses. It's as if he wants us to trust individual experience, personal testimony. With every important spiritual question we have, are we polling the populace? Are we sending out a survey? Are we checking for majority opinion? Or can we trust the spiritual witness that can come when a single individual bears their personal witness of truth. And then, perhaps more importantly, will we trust one man or one woman when that one man or woman is you? Who am I to stand up to the multitudes? Who do I think I am? Who do I think God is? That it's just me believing these things? Oh, there are more with us than those that be with them. But again, it's not about numbers. It's about personal conviction. Can I trust my individual experience, my personal testimony of God? Can I stand up and stand out even when I'm forced to stand alone? God does work through those types of individuals. It's funny the way they respond. They say in verse 2, you really think we're going to believe one person, even if he says that the earth's going to pass away? And then Alma has to interject. Now, they understood not the words which they spake, for they knew not that the earth should pass away. So it's almost like they're saying, we wouldn't believe you even if you said the earth would pass away. And then Alma's like, well, now that you mention it, that is exactly what's going to happen. And then in verse 4, it happens again. We will not believe thy words if thou shouldst prophesy that this great city should be destroyed in one day. And then again, Alma's kind of comical aside. Now they knew not that God could do such marvelous works. In fact, we'll see later in the book, that's exactly what happens to the city of Ammonihah, down to one day. So two times in a row, it's like, we wouldn't even believe you if you said this. Well, now that you mention it, that is true. And even if you said that, well, now that you mention it, that's going to happen too. You're on a roll. Keep making prophecies as you deny the gift of prophecy. But I think it's more than just Alma's humor saying, wow, you're two for two on this. Notice the specific thing that they're doubting. I don't even care if you say the earth will pass away. Imagine the largest, most devastating consequences of our choices. Doesn't phase us a bit. We're not going to change. Or even this great city being destroyed in one day. Imagine the biggest, most obvious evidence that what you're saying is true. That doesn't faze us either. We are not going to change. Devastating consequences. Unmistakable signs. They don't matter to us. Talk about stubbornness. Talk about what it says at the end of verse 5. 
They were a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people. Those hard hearts, the kinds that will not receive the word, that receive the lesser portion, so little that it's next to nothing. Hearts so hardened that they are stubborn and will not be softened, will not be molded, won't be changed, no matter how big the consequences of their failure to do so. Stiff-necked, totally unwilling to look up to God or to bow their heads in his presence. It may be hard for us to relate to what a hardened heart feels like, but we've probably all had stiff necks before. And boy, is it difficult to move. It's hard to look around. You ever had that time where you're just kind of, uh, it's really hard to look up or to look down. And both of those things are required of the humble. It's the humble that can do those things so much more easily. Again, are we starting to see the difference between the heart of an Amulek and the heart of the people of Ammonihah? One soft enough to receive the greater portion and all the blessings that come with it. And one so hard that no amount of evidence, consequence will change them a bit. What does Alma preach to them then? Verse 7 As they're about to lay their hands on him, he stands with boldness, declares and testifies boldly unto them with a very bold message. This is not soft peddling for softened hearts. This is hardball for hard-hearted people. He says in verse 8, O ye wicked and perverse generation, how have you forgotten the traditions of your fathers? How soon you have forgotten the commandments of God? It boils back to what he'd said to the people in Zarahemla. Remember, 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 retain in your remembrance captivity and deliverance and the attributes of God that come between. He's trying to stir them up in remembrance when they have forgotten. But notice in 8, it's not just that they've forgotten traditions and forgotten commandments. It's that verse 9 and 10, you've forgotten the hand of God. Traditions and commandments independent of God, who cares about them anyway? Go ahead and forget those things. Just one tradition versus some other tradition? Ah, it's just cultural construct, big deal. Or commandments? It's just what you're forcing upon us. It's, we don't have to listen to you, right? But to forget the presence of God in their lives, the source of those commandments, the source of those traditions originally. Verse 9, don't you remember that God brought Lehi out of Jerusalem? Don't you remember that God led them through the wilderness? Verse 10, how can you forget that he has delivered our fathers so many times out of the hands of their enemies, that he's preserved them from destruction? That's what he's trying to do with you. He's trying to lead you out of your wilderness of sin. He's trying to deliver you out of the hands of your enemy, especially when the enemy is yourself. He's trying to preserve you from being destroyed because doubt all you want that it can't happen to this great city. It can. It can happen in one day. Eventually it would. What have they really forgotten? Verse 11, God's matchless power and his mercy and his long suffering. Without those things, we would have unavoidably been cut off from the face of the earth. Another one of those perceived impossibilities in your mind. Look at those three attributes again. God's power, his mercy, his long suffering. We need God's power because we can't do it on our own. We need God's mercy because we don't deserve the help that he's offering us. And we need his long suffering because, boy, are we a tough bunch to put up with the whole way through. I love that combination of characteristics. His power lifts me. His mercy forgives me. And it's his long suffering that puts up with me. I need all three in abundance. In verse 12, the message keeps coming through loud and clear. He commandeth you, the same God of power and mercy and long-suffering, he commands you to repent. And except ye repent, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. There's no other way to get there. But this is not all. It's not just about the kingdom of God. It's not just the next life that repentance changes for us. Behold, this is not all. He has commanded you to repent, or he will utterly destroy you from off the face of the earth. It's this life too. The difference between the righteous and the wicked doesn't just kick in past judgment. It begins right now. 
The blessings of repentance don't just start later. They start right now. And the burden of our sin doesn't just press down upon us on judgment day. We're judging and condemning ourselves already. Like President Packer always used to say, we're more often punished by our sins than for our sins. It's the first half there. You'll never inherit the kingdom of God unless you repent. That's punished for your sins. But right now, you'll be utterly destroyed from off the face of the earth. That's current calamities. That, that is being punished by your sins right now. Yea, he concludes, he will visit you in his anger, and in his fierce anger he will not turn away. By the way, Alma memorized his discussions well. See how he ends verse 12? He will visit you in his anger, and in his fierce anger he will not turn away. Go back to chapter 8, verse 29. When the word comes to Alma, saying, Go forth and prophesy, saying, Repent ye, for thus saith the Lord, Except ye repent, I will visit this people in mine anger, yea, and I will not turn my fierce anger away. See the parallel? Alma nailed it. He said exactly what the Lord had told him to. But that does seem, at least by modern sensibilities, a pretty harsh first discussion. Whatever happened to what King Benjamin taught about the goodness of God that makes us want to repent? So much of what we've seen in the Book of Mormon is that positive approach to preaching repentance. Well, this is the more negative. Well, is Alma just doing it wrong? Of course not. He's doing it exactly the way the Lord told him to. And the Lord knows that audience better than anyone does. He knows the state of the heart of that audience and knows its hardness, the kind of strong words that will be needed to break that heart down. It's like what Paul talks about, that can God write upon the fleshy tables of the heart? Well, if you ever tried to work with nice soft Play-Doh, it's really easy. It's so malleable when it's soft. But once it gets hardened, there's not a lot you can do. There's not fleshy tables. I can't write anything in it at all. We're the clay in the hands of the potter, right? And as long as that clay is wet, it's soft, it can be changed. Even if it starts to get lopsided, he can just kind of lump it back together and start over. He can reshape it. But once it gets hardened, what's the only thing he can do? Grind it back down to powder and then add living water to give this vessel another chance to become a vessel of honor in the hands of God. It has to be strong language because anything softer just wouldn't do. Again, if anybody knows this, it's Alma the Younger. It wasn't the still small voice that woke him up. It wasn't his parents' continual preaching. It was an angel who spoke with the voice of thunder and shook the earth. That's what Alma needed. That's what the people of the city of Ammonihah needed, all because of the state of their heart. It's almost like he's saying, it's not just that a hardened heart will receive the lesser portion of the word, it will also receive the harsher portion of the word, because nothing softer will have any effect. Let me throw out just a couple of verses that help illustrate this principle. Enos chapter 1 verse 23, there was nothing save it was exceeding harshness preaching and prophesying of wars and contentions and destructions and continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity. All of this is going to be important as we continue learning about Ammonihah. The judgments and the power of God and all these things stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. Not just the faith of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. I say there was nothing short of these things, an exceedingly great plainness of speech would keep them from going down speedily to destruction. It was destruction that God was trying to avoid. And so threats of destruction seemed to be the only thing loud enough that could register for them. Compare that to Helam in chapter 12, verse 3. And thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with death and with terror and with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. Well, what Helaman 12 describes physically, Enos 1 described rhetorically. And both are at play in Alma chapter 9. Alma's rhetoric, but also the warnings of the physical results of their sins as the Lord warns them. 
How about this one from Moroni chapter 9, verse 4. Mormon laments, When I speak the word of God with sharpness, they tremble and anger against me. But when I use no sharpness, they harden their hearts against it. Wherefore, I fear lest the Spirit of the Lord hath ceased striving with them. At some point, the Spirit puts down the dukes. I can't, I'm not going to keep fighting you if you keep fighting me. See what Mormon's up against? Darned if I do, darned if I don't. Neither way works. I try soft and you get hardened. I go hard and you get angry. I can't do anything for this people. Compare that to two final verses on this topic. 2 Nephi 33.5 Nephi says that the gospel speaks harshly against sin according to the plainness of the truth. But then he says that no man will be angry at the words which I have written unless he has the spirit of the devil. Isn't that interesting? We don't get angry at thoughts of God's anger unless we had the fighting spirit to begin with. It's what Nephi said to his brothers earlier on in the book, right? That the wicked take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. It cuts them. Remember that, because listen to what Jerem says in chapter 1, verse 12. The prophets at that time were crying repentance, harshly, most likely. And by so doing, they kept the people from being destroyed upon the face of the land. For they did prick their hearts with the word, continually stirring them up unto repentance. Again, what's the condition of the heart? Hard hearts get cut with calls to repent. Soft hearts get pricked by those words and actually choose to repent. You see that clearly in the book of Acts. When Peter gives two very similar sermons, but in one instance, the audience is pricked by their guilt and they ask, what should we do? And he cries repentance and baptism, and they do exactly that and join the church by the thousand. Just a couple chapters later, he preaches the same message to a very similar audience, and it says that their hearts were cut by his call to repent, and they're angry and ready to throw him into prison. When Stephen preaches a very similar message to his similar audience, how do they react? They are cut to the heart, and they end up stoning him to death. Interesting to me that the group that changes is pricked, and the groups that refuse to are cut. The wicked take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them, as opposed to people who are pricked by the word and choose to change. How do we react to calls to repent? Do we feel that God is angry and we get angry in return? That tells us this, the condition of our heart. Or do we accept it? Lord, is it I? Yeah, I knew that it was. Please be forgiving. Please be merciful to me. I do recognize your power. I'm banking on your mercy and your long-suffering. Please let me change. I want to. It's all about the condition of our heart. Now, as Alma goes on, he introduces what we could consider the fourth example of hearts being juxtaposed. The first was Melech versus Ammonihah. The second was the old Alma versus the new Alma. The third was the heart of an Amulek compared to the heart of the people of Ammonihah. Well, here Alma is going to spend the next several verses comparing Nephites to Lamanites to let this Nephite audience in Ammonihah know that they're a lot more hard-hearted than their Lamanite peers. Or at least the Lamanites have better reason for the condition of their hearts than the people of Ammonihah do for the condition of theirs. This lasts through most of the rest of Alma chapter 9, using the Lamanites as a cautionary tale of sorts. It goes from verse 13 to verse 25. He starts by going back to the beginning, Lehi, and this command that if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper, and if you don't, you'll be cut off from the presence of the Lord. You get Nephites versus Lamanites right there based on that hinge point. Then 14, remember, Inasmuch as the Lamanites haven't kept the commandments, they've been cut off from the presence of the Lord. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is exactly what I'm warning you about, you Nephites of Ammonihah. The word of the Lord's been verified in this thing, and it will be in this thing as well. So we talked about two weeks ago about the curse for the Amlicites being cut off from God. We curse ourselves every time we leave him. The people of Ammonihah were destined and doomed for that same cursing. 
But in verse 15, it's more tolerable for those cursed Lamanites. At least it will be in the day of judgment than for you if you remain in your sins. Yea, it'll be more tolerable for them in this life than for you. So again, it's not just then, it's now. It's not just final judgment, it's preliminary judgment. It's not just what's going to happen to us in the next life. It's what is happening to us in this life. Except we repent. Verse 16, there's so many promises extended to the Lamanites. Jacob talked about some of them in his book. Lehi himself made some promises upon his grandchildren that came through Laman and Lemuel. It's because the traditions of their fathers that caused them to remain in their state of ignorance. What's your excuse, Ammonihah? The Lord's going to be merciful to them, just like Lehi prophesied. He's going to prolong their existence in the land. They will outlast. Wicked, or I should say ignorant Lamanites, will outlast willfully ignorant Nephites. Wickedness by tradition will outlast wickedness by choice. There's a far higher degree of culpability, of accountability with the latter rather than the former. With that prolonged existence, then 17 becomes a possibility. In fact, it becomes a guarantee, as God has promised people from the beginning of the Book of Mormon. At some period of time, they will be brought to believe in his word. They will know of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers. Many of them will be saved. The Lord will be merciful unto all who call on his name, and they'll finally know that they can and should. Remember, that was Enos' prayer. And the Lord said, oh, I, I th I'm already on record that I'm going to do that because your fathers required of me this thing. Strong verb, required it. You, on the other hand, verse 18, if you persist in your wickedness, your days will not be prolonged in the land. The Lamanites will be sent upon you, and if you repent not, they'll come in a time when you don't know it, You'll be visited with utter destruction. It'll be according to the fierce anger of the Lord. Again, strong language there. Verse 19, he's not going to suffer you to live in your iniquities, to destroy his people. He would rather let the Lamanites destroy you than let you destroy yourselves. Again, there's some mercy in that. Self-destruction seems to be the worst kind of destruction, especially if you have had so much light and so much knowledge given unto you from the Lord your God. Remember that promise in section 82, that he who sins against the greater light receives the greater condemnation. Well, that's exactly what Alma is warning the people of Ammonihah about. You Nephites, verse 20, you've been such a highly favored people of the Lord. You've been favored above every other nation, kindred, tongue, or people. God has made known unto you according to your desires, your faith, your prayers. He's given you truth, that which has been, which is, which is to come. What has he not given you? He's visited you with the Spirit. You've conversed with angels. You've had the voice of the Lord speaking unto you. Prophecy, revelation, tongues, preaching, gift of the Holy Ghost, gift of translation. You name the spiritual gift. God has been so generous with you. You have received the greater light. 22, you've been delivered by God out of Jerusalem. You've been saved from famine, sickness, all manner of disease. You've waxed strong in battle so you wouldn't be destroyed, then why are you destroying yourselves? You've been brought out of bondage, then why captivate yourselves? You've been kept and preserved. You've been prospered. You've been made rich. And now you're taking all the credit. 23, if this people, this highly favored, this that has had so much light and so much knowledge, if you've received so many blessings from the hand of the Lord, if you transgress contrary to it, contrary to that abundance of light and knowledge which you have, if that's the case, if you fall into transgression, it would be far more tolerable for the Lamanites than for you. 24, the Lamanites have received their promises. Have you? 25, the Lord is sending angels to visit so many of us so that we would come and declare these things unto you, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is nigh at hand. My dear Nephite audience, he's saying, the Lamanite day will come. We're actually seeing it all around us as the Lamanites blossom as the rose. But for you Nephites, the day is now. You've got to blossom right now or this rose bush is going to be pulled out by the gardener himself. 26, he brings it back to the real point of it all. Not many days hence the Son of God shall come in His glory. His glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father. 
full of grace. He's offering it to you. But also full of equity. Justice demands that you live up to the light and knowledge you've been given. And truth, full of patience, mercy, long-suffering. You need all of those. They're yours. He's quick to hear the cries of his people. He's quick to answer their prayers. 27, he comes to redeem those who will be baptized unto repentance through faith on his name. It's the same message that he and his father and so many previous prophets have testified of. Faith, repentance, baptism. Here, I love the way he reverses the order. Baptized unto repentance through faith on Christ's name. 28, his invitation then. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. The time is at hand. All men shall reap a reward of their works according to that which they have been. Interesting surprise there. I would have expected done. We'll reap a reward of our works according to what we have done. Isn't that what works are? Stuff that we've done? Well, Elder Oaks taught this powerfully years ago. That it's not about what we've done. It's about what we've become. Our works aren't a matter of doing. They're a matter of being, of becoming. And I love how that's clarified in that phrase. We will reap a reward of our works according to what they have made of us, what we've been through our lives. If we've been righteous, we'll reap salvation according to the power and deliverance of Jesus. We didn't deserve it. We deserved the captivity we were under. But we will reap deliverance from Christ. And if we've been evil, if our works have shown that we have been evil, then we'll reap damnation according to the power and captivity of the devil. Which do you want? How's your heart? Hard or soft? You want captivity or deliverance? Power of the devil or the power of Christ? The choice is yours and you are making it as we speak. So in 30, he says to them, my beloved brethren, you are my brethren. You've already qualified for that word. And ye ought to be beloved. Please qualify for that one. You ought to bring forth works which are meet for repentance. Seeing that your hearts, again, this is the body part we're looking at today, have been grossly hardened against the word of God. No wonder none of it will penetrate. No wonder you receive the lesser portion. That's what makes you a lost and a fallen people. Well, how did they respond? Finally, softened. Hearts broken, spirits contrite, ready to change? Not yet. Verse 31, the people were wroth with him because he said they were a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people. <laughs> Talk about proving that he was right all along. You said, I'm angry. I'm so mad about that. Or in this case, you called me hard-hearted. Well, let me prove you right. You call me stiff-necked. Well, I will not bow in humility. And I don't need to bow in agreement. I'm proving that you're right. At this point, they're ready to pick up where they left off when they first cast him out of the city. They want to lay their hands on him in 32 and cast him into prison. But 33, the Lord doesn't suffer them to do it at that time. Foreshadowing. He'll allow it to happen later. Instead, verse 34, tag team. And here comes Amulek who stands forth and begins to preach unto them. And we get his message in chapter 10. Now, we've already looked at the beginning, right? When he starts, he introduces himself. He puts himself in their place. I'm just like you, knowing but not knowing, refusing to know. Verse 6, hardened heart, wickedness of heart. 7, 8, 9, 10, the Lord intervened and sent an angel to let me know about the coming of this man of God. And when I soften my heart enough to grant him access, everything about my life changed for the better. So far, he hasn't really taught them anything directly. He simply introduced himself and shared with them his experience. That could have been enough. It was enough for him. I had this experience and it changed me. Please learn from my experience and change yourself. Well, their hearts are not like Amulek's. So what happens? In verse 12, here's their reaction to his message. When he'd spoken these words, the people were astonished. There is more than one witness. No way. That's what they'd said at the beginning of chapter 9. Who are you that's only one person? Who's God that would only send one? Well, he sent two. 
and the second is one of your own. Jeremiah said that God would pick one of a city and two of a family. Why? In hopes that the leaven would leaven the lump. Well, here's your chance. One of your own, a man of no small reputation, a man of industry, of wealth, of influence. Will you let him influence you positively? Well, they're not ready yet. Verse 13, there were some among them, which lets us know it weren't all. We start to see a division among the hearts of the people of Ammonihah. Some a little closer to Amulek, some much further away. Those on the far end of the spectrum thought to question them. That by their cunning devices, they might catch them in their words. That they might find witness against them. They're going to have to look for it. They're going to have to plant it there themselves so that then they could be slain or cast into prison according to the crime which they could make appear or witness against them. It, the whole thing's going to be fake, trumped up charges. This is so much like the wicked priests of Noah with Abinadi or so much like the scribes and Pharisees with Jesus trying to find false witness against them, trying to question them, to catch them with their cunning devices. This is a lot like Sherem with Jacob. Now in 14, the chief among those who were doing this were lawyers. Now, I've got a brother who's a lawyer and I subject him to all of the stereotypical lawyer jokes that I can think of. I don't think President Oaks or Elder Cook or Elder Christofferson probably appreciate that. Maybe here we see another possible dichotomy between hearts. Soft-hearted lawyers and hard-hearted lawyers. There's both kinds. But the fact that they're lawyers, I think, is an important detail here. Not just to heap more abuse upon my poor brother. But lawyers come in handy during times of trial, it says in 14. Trials over crimes. Because it's in those times that you're trying to interpret law. You're trying to get around punishment if you're lawyers for the defense. You're trying to make things look worse if you're lawyers for the prosecution. Again, all of this can be done honestly and needs to be, but it can also lend itself to dishonesty, as was the case here. Verse 15, these lawyers were learned in all the arts and cunning of the people. We already saw priestcraft with Nehor. This is what Joseph Smith called lawyer craft. Again, when it's craft, can I be crafty and cunning in this case, a way to enable them to be skillful in their profession, but not just skillful towards worthy ends, skillful towards self-serving ones. In 16, they begin to question Amulek, the new guy. Let's pick on the greenie missionary. Alma might know better. He was the chief judge at one point. He would have outranked them all in their judicial system. Well, let's pick on Amulek. But they knew not in 17 that Amulek could know of their designs. This is purely spiritual here. Discernment. He perceives their thoughts and says to them, You wicked and perverse generation, you lawyers and hypocrites, you're laying the foundations of the devil. You are laying traps and snares to catch the holy ones of God. I love the fact that he includes himself there, or seems to at least. Holy ones, plural. When he first was told about Alma by the angel, he was told that he was a holy servant of God. But now he's his companion, his equal before God. These are now two of the holy ones of God. The wicked lawyers were laying plans to pervert the way of righteousness, to bring down the wrath of God upon your heads, even to the utter destruction of this people. From 19 to 21, he warns them to repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Trust God's judgment and justice in all of this. 22 and 23, he warns them, be careful how you treat the righteous. They're the only things keeping this place afloat. We'll see that warning fulfilled hauntingly in upcoming chapters. It's only the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land. Shortly thereafter, they wouldn't be. But those that still are, they're the only ones that are keeping us from utter destruction. Without them, we're no better than Noah. And prepare yourselves for a flood. In our case, it will be famine. It will be pestilence. It will be the sword. But it will be destruction. And it's only the prayers of the righteous that are sparing us. You cast them out and all bets are off. There is no more protective power. These righteous saints that are praying for their own preservation are preserving you too. In fact, knowing their hearts, they're probably praying for you 
in spite of the fact that you despitefully use them and persecute them. It's all going to happen, he warns at the end of 23. This time is soon at hand. Except ye repent. This is very similar to Abinadi's message, by the way. And a similar response. In 24, the people are more angry than ever. Again, what's the condition of your heart? They cry out and say, This man reviles against our laws that are just, our wise lawyers whom we've selected. Well, you, you shout, Amulek can shout too. He cries the mightier and says, O ye wicked and perverse generation, why hath Satan got such great hold upon your hearts? There it is again. Why did they reject Alma back in chapter 8? Because Satan had a great hold upon their hearts. Why are they rejecting one of their own, Amulek, here in chapter 10? Because Satan has a great hold upon their hearts. Why such a strong grip? Because they have yielded themselves unto him. They've handed their hearts over. And he has power over them to blind their eyes so that you will not understand the words which are spoken according to their truth. Again, the hardened heart receives a lesser portion of the word until they don't know anything concerning the mysteries of God. Notice also, he has a hold of your hearts and he blinds your eyes. This sounds so much like Samson. The one judge in the book of Judges that actually seemed to have a shot, a legitimate shot at redeeming Israel and defeating their enemy, the Philistines. This was a miracle boy, a child of promise, one who broke all his promises to the Lord. And when he's finally captured, what do the Philistines do? Knowing the potential of this enemy, they bind him and blind him. They put out his eyes and then chain him in their temple. And then they pack the place with people who then mock him, laugh at their conquered enemy. There's actually a fascinating verse in Moses chapter 7, one of Enoch's visions, where it says that he saw in vision Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and with it he veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness, and he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. That verse gives me the willies. But do you see Samson in that verse? All the same elements are there. Satan had a great chain in his hand. Samson was bound. And with it he veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. Samson's eyes were put out. And Satan looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. All those Philistines packing their temple, mocking and rejoicing over their enemy. You see the same thing here? People who yield themselves to the devil. It's the only way he can win. We wave the white flag. We succumb to him. We yield to his enticings. And what's he do once he gets us? He binds us and blinds us, just as he'd done to the people of Ammonihah. Amulek is shocked at what they say. What do you mean I've testified against your law? I've been defending it. You're the ones that are breaking it. 27, and your lawyers, your so-called wise lawyers, they're laying the foundation of your destruction. That's anything but wise. 28, again, it just keeps escalating, going back and forth. And now the people are yelling back at Amulek. Now we know this man's a child of the devil. He's lied unto us. He's spoken against our law, and he said he didn't. Sounds like what we started with. Two different kinds of hearts approaching the same situation and reading the situation completely differently from one another. Now the lawyers are riling them up. In 30, they're putting it into their hearts to keep remember these things against them. I mean, don't remember the blessings of God, but do remember the so-called sins of his servants. And one of them, verse 31, the foremost among them, leader of the pack of these cunning, deceitful lawyers, is a man named Zeezrom. He was one of the most expert among them. He'd had much business to do among the people. And again, the business was not to seek justice, as lawyers should. It was to get gain. That's what made this lawyer craft instead of law. Just like Nehor was guilty of priest craft instead of priesthood. Now meeting Zeezrom at the end of chapter 10 is important because he's going to play a key role for the next several chapters. He's also the fifth and final example of these hearts side by side, soft and hard, and how to compare the two. And like 
Alma earlier, same person, but different hearts at different stages of his life. We're going to see the same thing with Zeezrom today and next week. What's his heart like now? Well, we just saw in verse 30 and 31. His own heart is hardened. He's trying to harden the hearts of his listeners. All he cares about is his own profit and gain. This then shifts into a discussion of Nephite coinage, which is going to be important a little bit later on. As it describes in chapter 11, verse 2, that anytime there's conflict between people, one person won't pay a debt, you name it, they're complained of to the judge. The judge executes authority. He sends officers. They're brought before him. He judges the man according to the law and the evidences that were brought against him. And then there's some kind of penalty enforced. All the names and values of the various Nephite coins are then explained. And then it says in verse 20, it was the sole purpose to get gain. That's all these wicked lawyers were after because they received their wages according to their employ. They stirred up the people to riotings. Like we saw back in two, if we can get people to complain about one another and complain to the judges, hey, that's more business for us, whether we're in the defense or the prosecution. So let's stir them up to riotings, to all manner of disturbances and wickedness. That way we get more employ. And more employ simply means more money. We'll get money according to the suits which were brought before them. So they stirred up the people against Alma and Amulek. Now, Zeezrom was the chief among them, we saw before. Again, great juxtaposition of Amulek versus Zeezrom. Two people of the city of Ammonihah, both men of industry, both men of high reputation, both men of wealth. And now these two are going to go mano a mano, man to man, face to face. We see it all unfold starting in verse 21. Keep an eye out for the condition of Zeezrom's heart. Zeezrom begins to question Amulek, asking a question about whether he can ask questions. He says, will ye answer me a few questions which I shall ask you? Interesting that, here again, this is a lawyer, cunning, very crafty, and he wants to set it up from the start. If I ask you certain questions, will you answer them? I don't want any kind of loopholes for you to be able to escape or back your way out through. You can get a sense already the kinds of questions he's going to want to ask. It's almost like he's saying, if I set certain traps, will you promise me to stick your foot in them? We need to be aware of the kinds of questions that are being asked us, the type of heart that is behind those questions. President Irene gave a talk decades ago, an incredible one, about how to help other people through periods of doubt. It's called, And Thus We See. And in that talk, he he talks about trying to find the heart behind the question that's being asked. Amulek does that beautifully. Again, you get that sense in the middle of 21. Now, Zeezrom was a man who was expert in the devices of the devil, that he might destroy that which was good. That's why he asked Amulek, will you answer the questions that I shall put unto you? This is, again, the scribes and Pharisees asking Jesus about the woman taken in adultery, where either answer is going to make him look bad, except the way Jesus actually does it. Or here's the coin, lawful to pay Caesar or not. Either way, there's going to be a wrong answer, unless you're Jesus, who always finds the perfect way to split the middle. Well, here's the Ezraim, expert in the devil's devices, asking questions in no interest of answers whatsoever. Verse 22, Amulek responds wisely. Yes, I will answer your questions, but here's my caveat. If it be according to the Spirit of the Lord which is in me, I shall say nothing which is contrary to the Spirit of the Lord. This next line, it seems that Zeezrom saw, okay, you closed my loophole. Then let me just cut to the chase. Here are six aunties of silver. All these will I give thee if thou wilt deny the existence of a supreme being. Now there's quite a bit to unpack there. Now, again, thankfully, all this, what seems irrelevant information about Nephite coinage, now comes in handy, recognizing that an auntie of silver is the highest form, that one auntie is worth all the lesser versions put together. It ends up being seven measures of grain. Now, it's really hard to put this into today's terms. I have no idea how much money we're actually talking about here. Now, in the verses about coinage that we skipped over, we see that a judge would receive for one day's labor a certain coin that was the equivalent of one measure of grain. Unfortunately, we don't know how big a measure of grain would be. It would have to be more than what one person eats in a day. Otherwise, how would a judge support his family? And how would he have food to eat on any day that he doesn't work all day? So maybe the closest equivalent we could come up with would be one day's wage. 
for a judge, which would be enough to provide for his family on all the days that he works and doesn't work all combined together. Now, an auntie of silver is worth seven of those daily wages. And six aunties would therefore be 42 measures of grain. If we take that as a day of work, 42 days of work, well, the way we run things, that would be about two months' salary. And two months' salary, not for some common day laborer, but for a judge elected by the people to interpret the law, to make sure that there's not crime and problems among, among the people. It seems to suggest it would be a somewhat higher paying kind of position. Again, I'm not going to speculate on some numerical value, but six aunties of silver, if it's roughly two months of pay for a judge, that does seem to be considerable. And Zeezrom offers the whole amount if Amulek will deny the existence of a supreme being. Now, ironic that a lawyer would be pushing for this, since we learn from King Mosiah that the laws of the land came from the commandments of God. And so to deny that there's a God is the equivalent of denying that there is a source of ultimate truth and ultimate law. No wonder lawyers could get gain based on the amount of work that they could multiply. If it's all about interpreting law and there is no ultimate law, then interpretation, pro or against, prosecution or defense, I can make money either way especially when I can try to interpret law with a degree of relativism that is completely wide open since there's no ultimate arbiter, no ultimate truth, no final say. No wonder denying the existence of a supreme being would be high on the order of things to do for a conniving lawyer. It's interesting because in early America, if you were an atheist, you were not allowed to testify in court. The thinking behind it was, you might lie to an earthly authority, and we wouldn't know. But if you believe in God, then you know that he would know. And though you might escape any kind of consequence in this life, you would not escape consequences in the life to come. Therefore, that threat of eternal punishment, that threat of judgment from an all-knowing judge, would keep an, a person honest in court provided that that person believed in those things. If they didn't, then they can lie to an earthly tribunal under the understanding that there is no heavenly tribunal to answer to. Amulek sees right through that as well. Verse 23, strong language. Again, over and over we see a hard heart answered with harsh language. O thou child of hell, why tempt ye me? Knowest thou that the righteous yieldeth to no such temptations? Great way to win friends and influence people, right? Please don't follow Amulek's example precisely when you're speaking with somebody that disagrees with you. Verse 24, he pushes it back into Zeezrom's face and says, you know there's a God. The only problem is you love that lucre more than him. Remember, this is Amulek, I knew, but I would not know. Well, Zeezrom, you know too, but you won't know. And it's because knowing God would get in the way of loving lucre. No man can serve two masters, Jesus would say, right? Furthermore, in verse 25, you lied before God unto me. You said you were going to give me those six aunties. They are of great worth. But in your heart, there's our body part, you plan to retain them. It was only your desire that I should deny the true and living God. In other words, you were making promises you had no intention of keeping. Sounds a lot like Lucifer, right? Promising things that he can't deliver on. Like when he tells Cain, Kill your brother, you'll end up with his flocks, and no one will know. What an irony that the entire Bible reading world knows exactly what Cain did. Or Lucifer offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world if he would only worship him. No intention of giving him that. In fact, no power to do so. Well, Zeezrom's pretty good at ducking and dodging. He backpedals a little bit, but then makes a new stand. Verse 26. Okay, fine. New question. Thou sayest there is a true and living God? And Amulek responds in the affirmative. Yes, there is. And then Zeezrom starts to get more specific then. Okay, you say there's a God. Is there more than one? No, Amulek responds. To which Zeezrom then says, okay, how knowest thou these things? 
And Amulek says, an angel has made them known unto me. And then Zeezrom says, well, who is he that shall come? Is it the son of God? And Amulek answers, yes. Then 34, Zeezrom says, well, shall he save his people in their sins? And Amulek says, he shall not, for it is impossible for him to deny his word. Now, have you noticed how quickly Zeezrom moves from one question to the next? I've had experiences like that with people that are attacking the church or intending to leave the church. And it's, it, to me, it feels like whack-a-mole. It's like you're about to respond to one question and then they duck and dodge and pop up somewhere else. Like, no, no, this is the question I'm asking. No, no, this one, this one, this one. This. And I, you realize in those situations, this person is not interested in answers at all. They're only interested in questions. Now, I love questions. I love talking with people one-on-one, -on -one, emailing, responding, however, to talk about the questions that they have about the gospel. God always seems to reward the honest seeker of truth. But honest is part of that. Sincerely asking because you want answers, not because you want to avoid answers, like Zeezrom is doing. He says in 35 to the people, see that you remember these things. Notice he said this and said that. Now, keep that in mind. Doesn't that sound like a lawyer that's kind of turning to the jury? He's amassed all of this detail from his examination of the witness. And now with all of this kind of raw material at his hands, he can turn to the jury and say, remember what was said. And then he can reorder those things, take them out of context or put this to make it seem like it contradicts this. Let me just amass it all and then start doing things with it that I want. Take the letter of his answers to go against the spirit of their responses. Notice also the kinds of questions that he's asking. Things not just about God, but about God's specific nature. Is there more than one? But does God have a son? How does this all work? It's interesting that people will try to attack us sometimes on, well, why aren't you Trinitarian? Oh, the, well, the Father and the Son are separate beings? Then you must be polytheistic, knowing that that word has so much baggage that goes along with it. And all of a sudden, people are thinking that Latter-day Saints are like, the ancient Greeks with their pantheon, or the ancient Romans, or the Egyptians with a god or goddess for every different thing of the day. That is not what Latter-day Saints believe. But by dropping the word, all of a sudden it just brings this connotation with it. Or that question, well, how do you know these things? Epistemology is the study of how we know what we say we know. And I'm amazed at the epistemological attacks that people of faith have to face especially in a post-enlightenment world, where if it's not a scientific, purely rational epistemology, then there is no room for anything spiritual, any confirmation from the so-called Spirit of God. How could you possibly know of these things? And then, of course, questions about salvation and how we can be saved and what is sin and what's really wrong or what isn't. Now, again, through all of this, especially with the way he sets it up in 35 with this, see that you remember these things, he's going to try to create contradictions. He's in, in the process of inventing absurdities based on the answers that he's amassed from Amulek. We're going to try to invent a contradiction between one God and a son of God, or salvation versus not salvation. He's then going to, get, he's going to make it personal at the end of verse 35. He's already said, he says there's only one God, but then he says there's a son of God. He says that he won't save his people, and then adds at the end, as though he had authority to command God. Zeezrom is stretching here, but he's trying to paint a picture for the jury, the audience, the people there in Ammonihah. Look at this guy. He thinks he can command God, coming from the same guy who just denied the existence of God himself. Again, Amulek stands up for himself. He sees what's going on. I love Amulek here, by the way. He says in 36, Thou hast lied. Thou sayest that I spake as though I had authority to command God, because I said he shall not save his people in their sins. Now this is the time it's Amulek that gets to make Zeezrom an offender for a word. This is some pretty impressive lawyering himself. Because what Zeezrom had asked earlier in verse 34 is if God would save his people in their sins. And so in 37, Amulek grabs a hold of that preposition in and builds off that. 37, he cannot save them in their sins because he can't deny his word. He's already said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. And how can you be saved if you don't inherit the kingdom? So 
you cannot be saved in your sins. That doesn't mean I said he wouldn't save you. He just won't save you in your sins because he can't. He has to save you from your sins. But for that to happen, you have to offer your sins to him. And that's the message of repentance that we've been teaching all along. Live in the South long enough and somebody's going to ask you if you've been saved. My eight years in Tennessee, I was surrounded by wonderful evangelical Christians who loved to talk about the gospel. And if you haven't been able to tell, I kind of enjoy that topic too. We'd have these amazing conversations and often they'd ask, have you been saved? And I would always respond, well, do you mean saved in or saved from or saved for? They'd look at me like, why are you trying to complicate things? And to me, it's not complicating things. It's clarifying things. What does salvation consist of? If it's a matter of being saved in our sins, we don't believe that's possible because no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. We therefore have to be cleansed from our sins, saved from instead of saved in. I would always add that saved for to give myself an opportunity to talk about what salvation was meant for. What does salvation look like to a Latter-day Saint? Why is God saving us? And that's why the reconciliation of our will to his is so essential, like we talked about in our lessons on King Benjamin. No wonder God is trying to remake me into a heart like his, because he wants me to live a life much closer to his life. I'm being saved from my sins so that I can be saved for an exalted life of service, of righteousness, of discipleship. We sometimes trip up over questions like that. It reminds me years ago when the Southern Baptists were about to have their convention, kind of their general conference. And where did they pick to do it? Salt Lake City. And before they came at our general conference, Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave a talk called, Have You Been Saved? It's almost like he was saying, brothers and sisters, the Baptists are coming to town. They will ask you this question. Don't make us look bad. The answer is yes. We have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ and his saving grace. We do have a different definition of salvation for and what salvation looks like to a Latter-day Saint as opposed to an evangelical. Both sides agree that salvation comes only in and through the grace of Jesus Christ. And hopefully, both can agree that God does not save us in our sins. He saves us from them. When Zeezrom asks in 38, if the Son of God is the very eternal Father, Amulek answers the question better than it was posed. Yes, he is the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth, as in the creator of those things. Jesus is the Father in that way. We're almost back to Abinadi now, when what did we talk about when we described Jesus as Father or Father's side? But Christ is the Father of heaven and earth. He's the creator of all things which in them are. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And more importantly, verse 40, He shall come into the world to redeem his people. He shall take upon him the transgressions of those who believe on his name. These are they that shall have eternal life, and salvation cometh to none else. This is not an easy universalism a la Nihor. This is the salvation of the sanctified. And that sanctification comes to those who believe on his name. Belief, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then being manifest in repentance, followed by a covenant to continue along that path, baptism unto repentance. Otherwise, verse 41, the wicked remain as though there had been no redemption made, except for one. And this is where Amulek's discourse becomes fascinating to me. The wicked, the unrepentant, act like there's no redemption except in this one area, the loosing of the bands of death. Here's where Amulek begins teaching the resurrection, that the resurrection is a guarantee for all. That's what he says in 41, the day cometh that all shall rise from the dead and stand before God. But what he's really after is the next line, and be judged according to their works. Alma already talked about this, right? Now Amulek is picking up where he left off. He's speaking to a lawyer about judgment and reminding him and everyone else in that audience, there's no avoiding that day in court. You see, as a missionary, we would always quote this chapter when we taught people about the resurrection. And I thought, this is the good news. We'll all be resurrected. 
Verse 42, there's a death which is called a temporal death. The death of Christ shall loose the bands of this temporal death, that all shall be raised from this temporal death. 43 continues, the spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, even as we now are at this time. It's great news. 44, this restoration shall come to all old, young, bond, free, male, female, wicked and righteous. You're all guaranteed. You will get your body back. There shall not so much as a hair of their heads be lost. My dad will have all his hair back. I'll barely recognize him. Everything shall be restored to its perfect frame as it is now or in the body. Those were the verses we'd share in the mission field to help people know that the resurrection is a gift that God gives to all unconditionally. Wonderful news. The irony is when you see it in context, Amulek did not teach the resurrection as good news. He meant it to be a jolt, a wake-up call, that this good news of life after death was bad news for the unrepentant. The people that acted like there was no redemption made Because if no redemption was coupled with no resurrection, then fine, we cease to exist. We don't have to pay the piper. There's no piper to be paid. Remember, this is what Zeezrom was saying at the start. Just deny there's a supreme being. Let all law be completely relative. However, it's interpreted by us lowly lawyers. If there's a God, first of all, and then second of all, if we will have to live after this life to face him, whoa. There is a piper, and there is a day in court. There is a time I will have to answer for myself. That's really what Amulek is getting at. You see in 41, he starts with, the day cometh that all shall rise from the dead. But what does he say immediately thereafter? And stand before God to be judged according to their works. 43, he starts with that wonderful good news, spirit and body reunited in its perfect form. But where does it end? Why is it reunited? Why the resurrection? So we shall be brought to stand before God, knowing even as we know now and have a bright recollection of all our guilt. That guilt that you're trying to sweep under the rug, Zeezrom. 44, he does it again. It happens to all. Good news, old, young, bound, free, male, female, wicked, righteous. Here's the bad news. They shall be brought and arraigned before the bar of Christ the Son and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, which is one eternal God, to be judged according to their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Do you understand what Amulek just did? Genius, masterful. By emphasizing that the resurrection was unconditional, he made the conditions of a conditional redemption all the more important. In other words, this is less about the reassurance of the resurrection and much more about a warning of the impending judgment. Without resurrection, there's no worry about judgment. But because of the resurrection, there will be a judgment day. So when he concludes this part of the message in 45 by reiterating that this mortal body will be raised to an immortal body, it'll go from death unto life, that they die no more, their spirits uniting with their bodies, never to be divided. That was actually scary news to Zeezrom and those that were like him. No wonder, verse 46, his reaction. When Amulek had finished these words, the people began again to be astonished. Even Zeezrom himself began to tremble. Zeezrom is floored by this message. This is when cunning meets clarity, when craft meets conviction, when relativism bumps up against absolute truth. This is what led people who listened to Jesus to say, he speaks as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is different from anything I've heard before. And that's Alma's cue to jump right in and give second witness to the kind of astonishing things that Amulek has just taught.